Well, in just a moment, we will be looking at Mark chapter 7, so I invite you to locate that passage, if you would. While you're locating it, I want to uh, let you know that this morning my intent is to examine a passage that has been a source of consternation to a lot of people. But before we look at that particular text, I want to ask you a couple questions. Number one, have you ever asked God to help you and he seemed to be totally silent or to ignore your pleas? Have you ever asked the same thing repeatedly from God and received no answer? Now, in just a few minutes, I trust that you will see the relevance of those questions. But uh, now let's look at the passage for our consideration today. Mark chapter 7, I'll begin reading in verse 24. And just so you'll know, I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it. Yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile. The word in the original language is Greek, which you may have there. The woman was a Greek, which means a Gentile, basically, for our pur Mark's purposes, of the Syrophoenician race. And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her. And he was saying to her, Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, Because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon, demon having left. Do you see now why this passage has disturbed some people? I wonder, does it pose any difficulties for you? Let's look at this particular text in some detail. Look at verse 24. Where was Jesus at this time? Well, obviously, Mark tells us he was in the region of Tyre, which is on, in case you haven't checked lately, Tyre is on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea, about 30 miles or so northwest of Galilee. Today, that particular region is in what we would refer to as Lebanon and Syria. Now, why had Jesus gone to Tyre? Was he looking or seeking opportunities for ministry or looking for people to help? According to Mark, Jesus intended for his presence in Tyre to be a secret. Why? Why didn't Jesus want anyone to know he was there in that house? Well, probably he went to Tyre to get away from the crowds with their incessant demands and their request for assistance. In other words, it was to be a time of rest, a time of solitude, a time when Jesus could spend some time 
instructing his disciples. But I wonder, have you ever stopped to consider just how busy Jesus was? How inundated he was with people and their insistent, incessant, excuse me, request. Let me just share with you two indicators of how busy Jesus was. Now, among many others that we could look at, consider these two. This is in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and beyond the Jordan. And also, notice this, the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that Jesus was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. That verb in the original language is translated um, those who had affliction pressed in around him. It's kind of an unusual word. It literally means to fall upon. And it, bear, it conveys the idea of pressing in upon some, someone or something because you've fallen upon it. You get the, the visual picture of a crowd that's literally like Jesus is on the bottom of a dog pile. People are pressing in on him, falling in upon him. That's how the crowds just thronging Jesus. Or what about this? Mark chapter 6, verse 31. Jesus said to them, to his disciples, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. Guys, we need a little rest. Mark explains why they needed that rest. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. Didn't even have, there were so many people coming to Jesus. He was so busy that literally they did not have time to stop for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I mean, they were busy. Well, go back to our text, verses 25 and 26. Who was it that came to Jesus? Well, Mark says it was a woman who was a Greek, in other words, a Gentile, of the Syrophoenician race. Now, Matthew, in chapter 15, also describes this particular incident in the life of Jesus. And in his account, Matthew describes this woman as a Canaanite. So notice, both Mark and Matthew go out of their way to direct our attention to this woman's ethnicity. What was significant about the woman's race? Well, I'm sure you're very well aware that Canaanites were ancient enemies of the Jewish people. And a Canaanite Gentile woman would have been a pagan with no relationship whatsoever to the God of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. So based upon her ethnicity and her culture, this woman probably was an idolater. And I remind you that Jews considered Gentiles, like this woman, to be the object of God's wrath. 
So why did this woman come to Jesus? Well, she had an incredibly tragic problem. Her daughter was in a desperate condition. Mark says that her daughter had an unclean spirit. Matthew says that her daughter was cruelly demon-possessed. Now, I want you to notice, how did the woman approach Jesus? Mark says she came and fell at his feet. And the verb that Mark uses is a verb that simply means to fall down in front of somebody, fall before someone. So she fell at the feet of Jesus. But if you read Matthew's account, Matthew uses a verb that says she fell down and worshiped Jesus. It's a verb in the New Testament that frequently is translated to prostrate oneself in worship. That's how she came before Jesus. So I wonder, would you consider this woman's, actually this mother's approach as one of conscious need and dependence upon the power and ability of Jesus? Would you say that she approached Jesus with an attitude of humility and respect? What was it the woman wanted Jesus to do for her? What was her specific request from Jesus? Look at verse 26. She kept asking Jesus, Mark tells us, to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now, in the original language, the Greek indicates that she did not just make one single request of Jesus. The tense of the verb in the original language indicates that she asked and kept on asking. This woman was persistent in her pleas to Jesus for help. Now, why do you think that she felt the need to ask Jesus repeatedly to come to her assistance. Well, here's where Matthew comes to our assistance. Matthew says that initially Jesus ignored her request. In fact, in Matthew 15, verse 23, we read, He, being Jesus, did not answer her a word. She kept asking. Jesus ignored her, did not answer her a word. But I got to tell you, this mother was so persistent in her repeated request that the disciples eventually came to Jesus and asked him to send the woman away. Because, they said to her, she's shouting and crying out behind us. And apparently, she was greatly annoying the disciples, and she wanted Jesus just to tell the woman to go home. But now look at verse 27. When Jesus finally did, when he finally did respond to this woman's repeated request, and he spoke to her, surely... He spoke words of comfort and assurance, right? Look at verse 27. When he finally spoke, Jesus said to her, Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, is that how you would have expected Jesus to speak to this distraught mother? 
How would you have responded if Jesus had answered you in this manner? You go to Jesus. Your heart is breaking because of the tragic situation in which you find yourself. And initially, it seems that Jesus totally ignores you. And then when he does answer, he says something like this. How would you handle that? But let me ask you this. What did Jesus mean by those words? Jesus said, it's not good to take what belongs to the children and to throw it to the dogs. And I hope you are aware that Jesus used words which the Jewish people employed as racial slurs to refer to the Gentiles as dogs. But I think we need to be very careful here. Notice, Jesus did not actually call this woman a dog, did he? He didn't really call her a dog. Basically, Jesus told this woman that there was a certain propriety, a proper sequence to follow. Feed the children first, then feed the dogs. And once again, Matthew comes to our aid by providing some more light on what the words of Jesus meant. Because in Matthew's narrative, he says that, he tells us that before Jesus, before Jesus spoke to the woman, he had informed his disciples that he came, or that he was sent, only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, I wonder, what does that sound like to you when Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? Does that mean that Jesus was limiting his ministry only to Jewish people and that he had nothing to offer to Gentiles? Kind of sounds that way, doesn't it? Look, my mission is only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. If we were to understand Jesus to mean, I only came to the Jews, I have nothing for the Gentiles, would we understand him properly? Did Jesus consistently refuse to help non-Jewish people when they asked for assistance? Now you got to kind of refresh your memory about what the New Testament says concerning the ministry of Jesus. Did he restrict his ministry only to Jewish people, refusing to help non-Jewish people, or had Jesus already responded to the request of any Gentiles prior to this event? Well, let me remind you of a few. First of all, what about the Roman centurion? Remember him? A Gentile whose servant was suffering and sent to Jesus, requesting that Jesus come and heal his servant, the Roman centurion. And Matthew reports that Jesus marveled at the faith of this Gentile soldier. In fact, do you remember what Jesus said about that Roman centurion? I have not found such faith with anyone in Israel. Matthew chapter 8, verse 10. 
And then I remind you, Jesus ministered to the needs of the Gerasene demoniac. He ministered to Samaritans in, the, in, in and around Samaria, according to John chapter 4. And uh, what we read earlier in Mark chapter 3, you remember many from the region of Tyre and Sidon had already gone to Jesus and had approached him for help, and he healed many of them. You reckon some of those Syrians who went to Jesus in Mark chapter 3 had returned home and informed this mother of Jesus and his ability to heal, and maybe that's why she showed up when she did? Well, look back at verse 27. I wonder, do you think that the answer of Jesus was as harsh, as rude, and as <clears throat> unsympathetic as it sounds? What about the facial expression of Jesus when he spoke those words? What about his the intonation of his voice and the inflection of his voice when he spoke those words. Because I suggest to you that how we say something often is every bit as important as what we say. Would you agree with that? Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. Let's say that uh, you and I are in downtown Hannibal walking along Main Street uh, one morning, and we meet one another. And as we approach one another, I look at you and I say, Good morning. Just like that. Scrawl on my face, Good morning. And then we go on about our business. A couple of days later, same thing happens all over again. Walking down Main Street, we encounter one another, and on this occasion, I look at you and say, Good morning. Now, if you were to read the, an account of those two events in a book, it would appear that I said precisely the same thing on both occasions, didn't it? But in truth, I communicated radically different messages on each one of those occasions. How we say something is often every bit as important as what we say. If you'd have read what I said in a book, you would have thought, quote, good morning. That's what he said both times. Meant the same thing. Surely did not. But you know, the truth of the matter is, I really don't know how the words of Jesus sounded. I don't know what his facial expression was or the intonation of his voice. Perhaps it did come across the way it appears when we read the words. Really don't know. But look at how the mother responded to what Jesus said. Look at verse 28. She responded, according to the version from which I'm reading, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. Now, I've got to tell you this. If you're reading from the same version I am, the New American Standard, or maybe you're reading from the English Standard Version, or perhaps from the King James, those versions insert at least two words not present in Mark's text. Those words are the word but, or maybe the word yet, your version may have the word yet, but, or yet, 
and the word yes. In other words, if I were to translate the original language very, very literally, this is what the mother said to Jesus. Lord, even the dogs under the table are eating from the little crumbs of the children. The point is, the woman did not say to Jesus, yes, but... In other words, the woman did not disagree with what Jesus had said. She agreed with Jesus and acknowledged the accuracy and legitimacy of what he had said to her. She did not plead any extenuating circumstances or ask for special favors. Instead, she simply acknowledged the truthfulness of what Jesus had said to her. But she did not stop there, did she? She made a remarkable confession. She went on to assert that the food provided for the children was so abundant and so overflowing that bits and pieces were falling off the table where it was also benefiting the dogs under the table. Now, what did that answer by the woman signify? Well, it signified that she acknowledged that Jesus was supplying an abundant feast for the Jewish people. Her answer indicated that the, that the abundance of the feast for the Jewish people also provided blessings and benefits to the Gentiles. She also confessed that even though the Jewish people were chronologically presented with the blessings of God's kingdom, first, please do not overlook that word first, in verse 27. The blessing, blessings were coming to the Jewish people first, but she also acknowledges that the Gentiles were also going to receive the same blessings in their turn. Feed the children first, Jesus said, then the dogs can be fed. Now, how did Jesus respond to this woman's answer? Look at verse 29. Literally, because of this word. In other words, because of what you have answered, Jesus said to the woman, Go, the demon has gone out of your daughter. But I ask you, what made the answer of this woman so special that Jesus granted her request? Well, Matthew indicates that Jesus said something else to the woman, which Mark does not tell us. According to Matthew 15, 28, Jesus also said to the woman, O oh, woman, your faith, your trust is great. Be it done for you as you wish. Somehow, the answer of this woman demonstrated that she was exercising great trust in Jesus. And I don't know about you, but that kind of reminds me of what Jesus, had, what Jesus said to the centurion, or to his disciples after interacting with the centurion, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel.
And now he commends this woman for her great faith. By the way, the New Testament describes only two people as being commended by Jesus for having great faith. You know who those two people were? Only two people in the entire New Testament did Jesus describe as exercising great faith. One was the Roman centurion. The other was this Syrophoenician woman. It comes kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? The only people Jesus described as having great faith are two Gentiles. One other thing that I think is interesting, guess who is the only person in the entire gospel of Mark to address Jesus as Lord? Yeah, you're right. This Syrophoenician Gentile. But let's think for just a moment here about the relevance of this passage for your life and my life today. Why did Jesus respond to this mother in the manner that he did? What do you think Jesus might say to you and me this morning if we were to ask him, Lord, why did you answer her that way? You think he might say, well, because that was the approach she needed. Or maybe he might say, because that was the best approach for her at that moment in her life. I wonder, those of us who have children, do we treat all of our children the same way? You know, if you have one child who has a tender and sensitive spirit, it may be that merely a stern look or a harsh word might reduce that child to tears. So that one requires a gentle response. On the other hand, you may have one who is bullheaded and strong-willed. No subtlety is involved in that situation. It takes the direct, in-your-face approach to get through. So I ask you, if you and I are smart enough to know that we have to use different approaches for different people, don't you think the creator of the universe might be smart enough to figure it out as well? Perhaps there was something in the life of this woman that required Jesus to respond in the way that he did. Or perhaps the answer of Jesus was what was required to evoke this confession of trust from the mother. But let me return to something I asked you earlier. Have you ever asked God for help and he seemed to be totally silent or to ignore your pleas? Have you ever asked the same thing repeatedly from God and received no answer? And I'm not going to ask anybody to raise your hand uh, to acknowledge that, but I suspect if, uh, if you're anything like me, you'd probably have to answer in the affirmative. Yeah, I've been there. I've asked God repeatedly 
and I didn't seem to get an answer. Or he just seemed silent. Well, you know, if that happened to you and to me, then I have to wonder, maybe the initial response of Jesus wasn't all that unusual after all. You and I have had that woman's experience, have we not? Going to Jesus and say, Lord, help me. I have this issue. I have this problem. Help me, help me, help me, help me. And it may go a long time before there's ever any answer. But how do you and I approach Jesus with our request today? Do we, do we come with expectant attitudes do we come with a sense of worthiness to have our request answered? You know, I'm, I trust that none of us here have, Im, have imbibed any of that nonsense about, well, after all, we're kingdom kids, so God owes us a response, right? Are we, do we approach God with an attitude that communicates that we deserve to have our request granted? I mean, if you love me, you'd, you'd, you'd do this. And after all, I kind of deserve it. I wonder, are, do we find ourselves exasperated and put off if God does remain silent and does not respond immediately? Or do we come humbly? Do we come acknowledging that we have no innate claim upon the goodness and mercy of God? Do we come with a sense of trust and complete dependence that Jesus will respond in a manner that is best for us and for those for whom we make the request? Are we like the Syrophoenician woman, prepared to fall at the feet of Jesus and heed his admonition that at all times we ought to pray and not lose heart. One final note, or one final point to note here. Do you appreciate that at the stage in redemptive history when that Syrophoenician woman approached Jesus, she could not claim to be a child of the kingdom of God? Not at that point in redemptive history. But yet Jesus extended grace and mercy to her. Do you realize the all inspiring good news of the gospel is that under the new covenant today you and I genuinely are children of God. Listen to the glorious affirmation by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. For all, don't miss that word, all who belong, or excuse me, who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God, children of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. 
the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Romans 8, verses 14 through 16. So this morning, as children adopted by faith into God's family, as children invited to feast at our Heavenly Father's table, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, what incredibly good news we find in your gospel that by faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we become your children and are invited to sit at your table. That we are joint heirs with Christ. That we can come before you and make our request. And Father, if this text tells us anything, I think it probably should instruct us that we genuinely do need to come and not faint, but to pray and to keep on praying, trusting that you will respond according to your love and your infinite wisdom in a way that is best and will work good for those who love you. We thank you for your gracious goodness and your mercy to us. In Jesus' name, amen.